You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me is my co-host, Paul Doroshenko. Hi, Kyla. We're in the same room. We are in the same room. We are not in the studio. That's true. Anyway, we have, a start. we have lots of, uh, yeah, it's a start. Our move is complete. We are now fully into our, our new temporary location at 2424 Quebec. Yes, that is 2425 Quebec. What did I say? Uh, you said uh, 2425, Quebec. Yeah. You don't want to go there because you'll end up somewhere wrong. Anyway. Um, <laughs> we have lots to talk about today. And I actually have a surprise topic for you. Really? Yes. I found out about this case today, this afternoon, and I didn't tell you about it. Oh. But it's something that you and I have discussed sort of generally um, as being a problem with the criminal code and with impaired driving investigations and sort of a lack of consistency between provinces when it comes to sentencing. Uh, there's a huge lack of consistency from province to province uh, for uh, sentencing when it comes to criminal code driving offenses, particularly when somebody is injured. Yes. And historically, there's also been a real... Um, discrepancy when it came to provinces being able to implement their own systems for punishment, which was a big problem. And you ding, and ding, I, ding. you and I wanted to do a constitutional challenge about it. And then the government, <laughs> then the criminal code was changed. Yeah. So it used to be that if you had an alcohol problem, um, you could get something known as a curative discharge, which was essentially you could get a conditional discharge but it would be for the purposes of allowing you to be rehabilitated as an impaired driver, um, basically a, take counseling or treatment or whatever, and you wouldn't get a criminal record. It was a funny little thing because the um, most of the sentencing provisions are in the sentencing sections of the criminal code, and there might be some little, you know, laying out the top and the bottom mandatory minimums and so forth um, in the section where the offense was laid out. But here it laid out all these different sentencing things for impaired driving. And it still does. Yes. But it doesn't have this curative discharge anymore. That was removed. That was removed. And it was replaced instead with Section 320.23 of the Criminal Code. And this the point of 320.23 is essentially to allow the prosecutor and the offender to have the court impose um, essentially like a like a suspended sentence, sort of. Um, where you get put on an interlock uh, program or you attend a treatment program. And then once you attend the um, treatment program, the court can choose not to give you a the mi- mandatory minimum that you would be facing, but you also can't get a discharge. So there's no discharge. You'll still get a criminal record for being an addict and having an out-of-control alcohol addiction that leads to you repeatedly impaired driving, but we can treat your addiction, and you probably don't have to go to jail for 120 days or more. It's a disease yeah, um, and addiction, but we punish people for it. We and give we them don't criminal give them, records. And we give them criminal records for it. So this and it's is, probably, I bet, you know, I bet since they got rid of the uh, 
the discharge provisions and, and considering how many people plead guilty to impaired driving across the country because they can't either afford somebody who knows to deal with impaired driving law or um, they get a lawyer who looks at it and comes to the conclusion that the appropriate thing is to plead guilty. Um, I bet it's among the most common criminal offenses now. It is. Uh, it is definitely. I mean, whenever courts talk about delay, they talk about impaired driving cases being a major driving factor of it. Yeah. Um, so this case Mr. Uh, involves Mr. Flett in Saskatoon, um, who was charged uh, with impaired operation. Um, it was his seventh conviction, although he hadn't had one in 27 years. Now, were he charged in BC? Se- seventh, seventh impaired driving conviction? Yes, it is right. life. 27 years. 27 year gap. Okay. If you were in BC, it would be treated as the first offense, but the Crown filed notice to seek greater penalty and rely on his seven prior convictions. And Mr. Flett said, hey, I want to go to a treatment program. I want to take, take you know, advantage of section 320.23 of the code. And I want to go to a treatment program and I don't want to go to jail. And he even had one lined up. The problem was that Saskatchewan did not designate any treatment programs for the purpose of the section. So he actually couldn't use that provision of the criminal code because it requires the province to designate treatment programs. Could he have waived it to another province, moved to another province and done it that way? I mean, that's the workaround. Yeah, I'm, I'm, that that's is the, the That's the secret workaround that, secret that workaround. we're not supposed to tell people Find about. Find a but, connection but to you, any other province but you, and you, wave it. People do do that. I mean, people used to wave some things to Alberta to be able to get the curative discharge. Yeah. So he uh, filed a constitutional challenge uh, arguing that his Section 7 rights were violated, his right to life, liberty, and security of the person, based on the inaction of the Saskatchewan government, um, saying that the alternative sentencing scheme wasn't available to him and that his rights um, were limited under Section 7 because he was bound, the judge was bound by a mandatory minimum jail sentence and that the province's inaction was an arbitrary exercise of discretion because the refusal to approve programming is contrary to the legislative objective behind Section 320.23. And the court considered whether or not this actually violated his Section 7 rights. I wouldn't have framed it that way, but in any event. I mean, yeah, it yeah, makes sure. sense, though. He's attracting no, it's himself a, way to a, frame it. yeah. a custodial sentence, so that engages yeah. Section 7. Yeah, for sure. Uh, how would you have framed it? Differently. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, thank you for the helpful insight. Yeah. I, I would frame it as a mobility rights issue. That you have I, more rights in a sentencing court in Alberta than you do in Saskatchewan. Well, it's it's discrimination as well against you by virtue of the fact that you're in Saskatchewan. Yes. So it's like an immutable characteristic that you well, are connected to Saskatchewan. But no, but that you're connected to Saskatchewan by virtue of the fact that you got arrested there when in the rest of the country you would have these other certain legal rights. Well, it's, you know, it was an interesting case, and I think he was a good test case candidate because you had the 27-year gap. He's a great test case candidate. And he's Métis. Excellent. Um, and he'd already, like, mostly completed an addictions program that was offered through the local Métis he had a Association. 27-year 27 gap. years. In BC, the Crown Council policy is not to rely on notice to seek greater penalty if the last conviction was more than 10 years ago. So mm. in BC, he would have been treated as a first offender. Well, now that's an interesting thing because that's uh, policy decisions made by the BC government and their Crown Council policy. 
which again would be something that would suggest this unfairness in relation to jurisdiction, mm -hmm. which really does call into question this whole scheme that we have where provinces do the prosecuting. In any event, back to it. What happens? Tell me what happens. Is, what's his name? Flett? Flett. F-L-E-T-T. -T. If you're looking for the case, it's 2021 SKPC 48. And this is actually interesting. The court rejects his arguments, saying that there's no reason that a province has to uh, do anything that allows a person to take advantage of a discretionary sentencing regime set up by the code, and Parliament in leaving it open to the provinces to use their discretion to mandate or, or approve treatment facilities also left it open to the discretion of the provinces not to do so. Which is just to me like a little bit, I don't know, I find it kind of rich. And then they point to um, a 1990 Supreme Court of Canada case. You say like, that like 1990 was no longer acceptable law. Anyway, 1990 Supreme 1990 Court. is no law. It's 30 years ago. So what? So our societal values have changed in 30 years. Look at other cases that were decided in the 90s that have been overturned. We still use the Oaks test. We still <laughs> use the Oaks test, but we revisited uh, the test for exclusion of evidence. In the Stillman and Collins analysis got revisited in the Grant Trilogy. Uh, but the what Grant about Trilogy is already 10 years old. Why would you even accept it anymore? Insight? Uh, Bedford? Maybe. Yeah. Look, I'm just saying. No, I know. I hear you. But it doesn't mean that it's wrong. But what does the case say? The so 1990 the case. The SS case from 1990 dealt with the Young Offenders Act. And the Supreme Court of Canada concluded um, that uh, Parliament's legislative action in creating authority for provincial governments to adopt an alternative sentencing scheme was valid, and that Parliament's action did not create an obligation for any individual province to act upon that authority. It's dumb. It is dumb. It is dumb, particularly when you're dealing with an Indigenous person who's struggling with an addiction, you can trace, like the court says. Those are not the considerations, code. I don't think. I think they are. I don't think those are those are separate, different considerations. In a, in in a constitutional so about, challenge, you consider a hypothetical about, offender. You're yeah, but you're talking about uh, unfairness as a, as it relates to a jurisdiction providing a potential. I wouldn't say right, but um, option in sentencing, and if you are. On one side of the line in Lloyd Minster, you have one potential sentence. And if you're on the other side of the line in Lloyd Minster, you have the other potential sentence. But it all relates to the criminal code. You know, you can and even... that's the reason that you and I talked about the charter challenge before, because and why it, it also affects mobility rights. But this is federal legislation providing a, a recognizing that that this is a problem that is a human problem. And recognizing that the remedies have to be consistent across the country and then providing something that the expectation is the attorney generals of those different provinces are going to come up with some sort of similar remedy. And they just failed to do it and failed to offer it again now to a person in particular who has that background. But I don't think the background is really the key thing. I think the, the key thing is the unfairness from province to province. And we're talking about federal legislation, the criminal code. 
Well, I mean, arguably, it also engages maybe some Section 12 interests on, like, cruel and unusual punishment because of the arbitrariness of it's it. It's cruel if you're in Saskatchewan, you get this, and if you're in Alberta, you get this, and yeah, if you're in BC, you get this. you could literally be on the wrong side of the road and get a different penalty. I would say that the, um, the Saskatchewan prosecutors are on the wrong side of history here. And I really think that this is something that has to be brought up at a federal level, that these various different um, considerations where you can get a much more lenient sentence in a different province, um, just by virtue of whether or not that province decides they want to enact something. For example, right now you've got a, a very right-wing uh, uh, government in, Sa- in Saskatchewan, um, and it just gives them the opportunity to to you know, basically override the expectation and the intention of the criminal code legislation. And criminal legislation is still, you know, squarely in the in the realm of the federal government. And they just get to override it. And uh, to me, it's, <laughs> I mean, it, it, it it's that the first thing that you learn when you're a kid is fairness. One of the last mm-hmm. things you have before you leave when you're in the senior's home when you see the meals being served, is fairness. Fairness is the most important thing to us in a legal concept, as a legal concept. And to see that it is fundamentally unfair in that way, um, you know, is will, will, would strike any person as something that needs to be addressed. Yes reasonable person. And I will tell you, as I've been, you know, my uh, ongoing concerns with the justice system, I've been able to find a position where I can step back and I'm no longer just analyzing things as a lawyer. And the more that I do that, the more I find I have a capacity to recognize what would be gutturally unfair to the, the average person in our society. Yeah, I mean, it is gutturally unfair, but very interesting case. Um, Hopefully they appeal. I hope so, too. Um, uh, It's unfortunate that we never had an opportunity to run that argument. And the reason we never had an opportunity to run that argument during the legislation was because... Because we never lost. Because we never lost. We never had a case where we could do it. We didn't have the sentencing case to do it. Well, I mean, we did lose once. We lost once, but it wasn't a case where we could have got a curative discharge no, in any of that. No, there's no facts so. to justify a curative. Yeah. It was too bad. I know. After years and years and years of wanting to lose, we just couldn't lose. <laughs> then when we finally did lose, it wasn't a case where we could do a challenge to the law. Yep. And then the law changed and we couldn't make it that challenge anyway. No. So now somebody else came along and made a challenge to the different version of it, and they were not successful. And if they don't appeal it, that'll be the end of it. And even if they do appeal it, I don't have a whole lot of confidence that it's going to go the way that I think that it should go. Well, speaking of things that could be, um, or speaking of cases that we lost, as you know, we filed a leave application with the Supreme Court of Canada in a case that we lost. Um... You're, look, you're looking at me like, stop bringing up the fact that we lost cases. Look, if a lawyer tells you they never lose, that's because they're not trying enough cases. 
you're bound to lose. Not every case the facts are going to be on your side. Not every case the law is going to be on your side. Not every case the judge is going to agree with you where the facts of the law could go either way. You could never lose, Kyla. You could plead everybody guilty. You're right. I would never lose if I pled everybody out. Yeah. You know, but I don't do that. I run trials. Sometimes I lose. I try to win. In the U.S., they call those lawyers dump truck lawyers. I'm not a dump truck. I don't like that phrase. Um, I don't I, lose I thought very it was kind often. Of funny. No, well, you put up a hell of a fight. Yeah, most um, of the time the crown lets me win by attrition. Well, and that's the way you have to do it in this uh, in this circumstance where we're running bench trials, uh, uh, judge alone trials all the time. Attrition but, is the method, and if you find yourself capitulating too often, the prosecution will know that you're a capitulator. They'll run every trial, and next thing you know, yeah, you'll you'll be losing more. But yeah, you if, fight back in every trial. If they if they push you, you know, if you plead everybody guilty, they know that if they push you, they can get a guilty plea out of you. If you run the trials, they know that you're going to put up a fight. And if you run them smart and you run them well, and maybe you'll lose a couple, they know they're going to have to suffer to get that conviction. You and I were recently discussing the um, the mitigating factor of a guilty plea versus um, a guilty plea at any other time versus... Uh, and it's a funny thing because the... Um, there, there's so little gained by pleading guilty early in a legal sense. Um, you know, on the one hand, you're sitting there thinking to yourself, oh, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. Oh, I've been found convicted. I'm found guilty. Oh, okay. I'm really sorry. So that sorry doesn't ring quite true when you go through mm-hmm. that whole process. Um, then again, I mean, there's lots of people who are are innocent and are convicted and don't want to say sorry. And then there's the people who are um, convicted and there's much more to the story than than the court ever heard and they don't really want to say they're sorry. And then there's people who are, are sorry just because of whatever. Um, so there's so much around that. But the um, it's a real um, uh, misunderstood concept in the justice system, the value of the guilty plea and whether there should be any value to the guilty plea and whether or not there should be different values to a guilty plea early on when we each and every one of us in Canada has a right to a trial. Yes. You're typing on your computer. I don't know if you're listening to my long lecture about guilty pleas. I was listening to your long lecture. Everyone has a right to a trial and holding a guilty plea uh, that comes late against a person, as you and I were talking about, is also problematic. Yes. Now, back to what I was bringing up on my computer, which was our next case. Okay. Because I was trying to talk about how we lost that one case. And um, the uh, we're seeking leave to the Supreme Court of Canada on the issue of the retrospectivity, prospectivity of the repeal of the presumption of identity in impaired driving cases. The thank presumption you. of thank identity for our listeners. Thank you, Kyla. I'm learning here. Thank you. And for me. Well, you know yeah. what the presumption yes. of identity is, uh, which is that uh, the samples have had to be under the old version of the impaired driving laws uh, taken within two hours uh, of driving in order for them to be presumed the same blood alcohol level as you were at the time of driving the vehicle, the first of the two samples. Um, and the government repealed that and replaced it with, you have to take the samples within two hours after the person ceased to operate the vehicle. And you can take it beyond two hours you and then, you, take it then there's a back extrapolation formula. But if you take it within two hours, that's evidence of 
the person having a prohibited blood alcohol concentration yeah. if their if their blood alcohol concentration is 80 milligrams yeah. or up. So the offense became <clears throat> being over two hours after instead of being over at the time of driving and then having the presumption to relate it back. At some point, we should really have on this podcast a discussion about how stupid that is of a name, the presumption of identity, because it has nothing to do with identifying the individual. Yep. It has nothing to do with that. All it has to do, and it was a, it's a relatively modern creation. It I remember, came in the, like, the last 10 years. I remember a trial <laughs> once where a judge like interrupted me in my submissions where mm-hmm. I was talking about the presumption of accuracy. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, what are the presumptions? So the presumption of identity and the presumption of accuracy. And he said, what is the presumption of identity anyway? And this is at the end, like at the submission stage of an impaired driving trial. And you're like, okay, this is step one. <clears throat> well, it's it's relatively modern step one. The, the Supreme Court of Canada just stuck it in there when we dealt with those decisions that arose out of the uh, end of the Carter argument, which was when they got rid of evidence to the contrary. 2008. Which is something we have to discuss as well when we got it to WD considerations. But the... Um, we might not get there in this podcast. Okay, well, we better... Because we got to talk about Hannah. Okay. Ryan Hannah. Okay. Alberta Court of Appeals. So he was convicted of impaired driving. Uh, he um, uh, appealed. Oh, this is the same issue as that we've appealed to, to the Supreme Court of Canada. That's what I'm In the one case we say. lost. You're spoiling <laughs> okay. my argument here. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. So he's, he uh, did a summary conviction appeal, also lost that, and is now seeking leave to appeal in the Alberta Court of Appeal, because I guess you have to have leave. I don't know the rules for the Alberta Court of Appeal. I'm not a lawyer in Alberta. Call Tim Foster. Um, but for whatever reason, he had to seek leave. You could and he call had, Chad. Chad would also know. You could call Chad Haggerty too. Um, just Chad is not an appellate lawyer, does not want to be an appellate lawyer. No. I think he said that he didn't want to be an appellate lawyer with respect to appealing his Twitter banishment. Oh, (laughs) fair enough. Um, Anyway, there were three proposed grounds of appeal. The first was the Goldson issue, which, of course, the Alberta Court of Appeal already decided. So there doesn't need to be a proposed ground of appeal there. But the second was about whether the repeal of the presumption of identity operated retrospectively or prospectively, which, of course, is the issue that we are dealing with in Possum. And in Hannah, the court actually looks at, um, uh, at, at Possum. The, the government uh, says, you know, well, the BC Court of Appeal already decided this. And the BC Court of Appeal... Um, uh, uh, said much judicial ink. This is anyway, I won't comment on my thoughts on this sentence, but much judicial ink has been spent on whether the presumption of identity applies to transitional cases. As I agree with those judgments that have held the presumption does not, does apply in such cases. There is no need for me to use more than a modicum of ink. It is enough to say that I adopt the reasons in persode, which is to say that they, the presumption continued to apply in the transitional cases. And so the Crown relied on that. And they're like, look, we've already had an appellate court chime in on this. There's like one case, this Shake case that said something else. And then all the other cases are like, you're crazy. And even the Shake judge overturned himself later. So like, maybe we should just let this, you know, let this sleeping dog lie. But the court, the Alberta Court of Appeal, granted leave on the issue. 
Uh, the court says, while the respondent's arguments are persuasive, at this juncture, it must be recognized that a panel of this court can provide appellate finality on this issue not currently available in Alberta, and while some transitional cases still remain before our courts. In my view, a definitive answer ought to come from a full panel of the Court of Appeal of Alberta. And they said, further, while not directly averted to by parties in argument, I remain troubled by the summary conviction appeal judge's statement at paragraph 78 of the decision, the presumption of identity is a procedural provision, not a substantive one. The Supreme Court of Canada determined that procedural amendments are presumed to apply to all rights respectively. This presumption against retrospectivity, however, is rebuttable where there is a clear intention by Parliament to the contrary. And the court uh, says that the conclusion that the uh, Superior Court in Alberta, the Court of Queen's Bench, had relied on was actually wrong. It was the wrong conclusion. Like they interpreted the Dinely case incorrectly. Um, and they were troubled by, and this is the point that I keep trying to make, the classification of the presumption of identity is merely procedural when much of the law, the court says, the summary conviction appeal relies upon, does not so find. It's not just it's not procedural. procedural. It's a it's substantive not, right. It's not procedural at all. It's not even just a substantive right. It's not procedural. It's, it's generating a, a evidentiary presumption mm -hmm. that would otherwise require evidence to be called. But this, interesting, this Alberta Court of Appeal judge, judge, leave judgment kind of hints that the Alberta Court of Appeal might go in a different direction. And wouldn't that be freaking weird? Well, it'd be awesome because the problem with the cases they're relying on arise from the retrospective application, again, back to mm -hmm. the removal of the Carter argument, which was Stephen Harper's thing, pressed by MAD, you used to be able to to demonstrate that the samples were wrong and you could demonstrate how the samples were wrong and that was removed. It was removed as a result of um, judges having difficulty applying the law with respect to WD. Yes. And <clears throat> so, but that was really full on procedural. Um, well, it was, I can't remember now. I can't remember how that was resolved at the Supreme Court of Canada. The Supreme Court of Canada found that the uh, <coughs> the presumption and the, the changing of the evidence to the contrary argument was not procedural. You're right. That it was substantive because it affected your right to mount a you're defense. Right. You're right. You're right. So this was um, and <laughs> this was Simon's argument. So this yeah. was, it's really too bad. I don't remember the history of this as well because I lived through it and it was like my life for a couple of years. Um, but uh, Judge Seidemann sitting in uh, Massett rendered a decision on this issue within a couple of days after the law came out. Off the bench. Off the bench. And then it went to the Supreme Court of Canada ultimately, and the Supreme Court of Canada's decision was not nearly as eloquent as, as Judge Seidemann on the bench in Massett. A provincial court judge um, rendered a decision that was vastly more erudite and one of the thoughtful best judges this than, country's ever seen than uh than the supreme court of canada which was kind of sad because the supreme court of canada it's kind of like they half missed the issue and they weren't capable of explaining it so the sad thing was in bc that some judges followed uh judges sideman decision judges judge sideman's decision and others did not and we had a split in the bench and for a while, we had certain courthouses going one way and certain courthouses going the other. <laughs> North Vancouver, they were not following it. And in Surrey, they were. So <clears throat> it was ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, if you I want would, to mock the justice system. I can... would be very interested because if the Alberta Court of Appeal rules on this, and I mean, 
the likelihood that they're going to hear the case and rule on it before the Supreme Court of Canada decides the leave application in Posset, unfortunately, is pretty slim. Although there's no time limit for the leave application. It does increase the likelihood of the leave application being um, granted. Being granted, yeah. Um, not that they know about this. No. But... Yes, they do. Of course they do. Probably. Um, but the other thing is, if they rule and they go the opposite way of the BC Court of Appeal then the likelihood of leave being granted is very high because if there's a conflict at appellate level between provinces... It has to be resolved. It has to be resolved. Well, there you go. So you might end up going to the Supreme Court of Canada yet and you might pull our one loss into a win or our one <laughs> or, loss may continue to be a loss. Or I might continue to lose. <laughs> well. But <clears throat> I don't give up fighting. It's worth arguing. It's worth arguing. There's no doubt about it. Now, Paul. Go ahead. We've gotten to that point. We've gone from Saskatchewan to Alberta. We popped off in BC for a visit to Masset. Yeah. And now we're going to go to Gimli, Manitoba. Oh, what's happening in Gimli? Well, not what happened two summers ago, thankfully. What? Uh, this is the case, the curious case of a stolen golf cart. Gimli, Manitoba. Yes, it's our The Ridiculous Driver of the Week. The Ridiculous Driver of the Week. Honk, honk, honk. Ridiculous Driver of the Week. Yeah. My favorite. My favorite part of the week. So what happens? So this woman, Mallory Kement, who lives near Gimli, went out and got home. And their golf cart was smashed into their truck. Huh. And she was like, oh my God, someone was in our yard and took our golf cart for a joyride and smashed it into my truck. That's a quote from her. Uh, and she tried to figure out who it was because so, obviously... So we don't, we don't know who the ridiculous driver is then. Well, she found out who it was. So it wasn't her. It wasn't her. She went and looked on her security camera and her 10-year-old dog, Titan, had gotten into uh, the golf cart to seek shelter when it started to rain. And uh, he likes the golf cart, so it was a safe place for him. And he sat on the gas pedal, and the golf cart took off and hit the truck. Oh, poor Titan. Oh, Titan didn't know how to use Titan, <laughs> Titan. They taught him how to accelerate, but not to brake. Yep. Oh, poor little puppy. And the whole thing's on video. Oh, okay. I mean, it's kind of cute. Yeah. But also not cute because the poor dog could have got hurt. Yeah, it's lucky the dog didn't like get thrown from the golf cart or something. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently he's he walked away, no injuries. Did he steer or did he no, just accelerate? No. He just sat on the gas pedal and it just went. Mm. Well, they should redesign those golf carts so A they can't be driven by a dog, accelerated by a dog, or B, if the dog's going to drive it, they should have full control. I think they need to need to develop pedals that a dog can properly reach. How, how can you start a golf? Don't you need a key or something? Yeah, apparently that? they just left the key in the on position at all times because mm. they used it just to move firewood in their yard, mm. so there was no reason. Okay. They're obviously going to change that practice now. Yeah. Well, so the ridiculous driver of the week is Titan. Titan the dog. Who drives a golf cart driving and a smashes cart. it into a truck. And no word on whether or not he had a few beers before the incident. Was he insured? He does not, he's an unlicensed driver. He's, he's an not unlicensed even driver. He's in a golf cart. There's no insurance. This is a real nightmare. Yeah. 
Can you imagine explaining it to your car insurance company? Like, yeah, my golf cart ran into my truck. Oh, okay. Who was driving the golf cart? My dog. (laughs) The insurance company would be like, I don't fucking believe you. There's been plenty of times I've been parking my, one of my vehicles at my house and I've got another vehicle there and I'm like worried about rear-ending my own vehicle or, or, yeah, so I was backing into my own vehicle. I don't know. Or my neighbor's driving my vehicle and we, you know, potentially collide. And I always think, oh, I don't want to phone the insurance company and say, yeah, um, Kevin was driving my car and I was driving the truck. And I don't know, we were kind of jerking around. And <laughs> yeah, but I I don't know. Like, she's glad that she should be glad that this is on video because otherwise I'm sure the insurance company would not believe her. Well, you think of all of those things that the insurance companies have not believed over the generations. So there's all these strange things that happen. The surprising thing is with all these strange things that have happened, the court still operates on this common sense <laughs> viewpoint. The, you can see in the video that there's lots of times common sense has not got anything to do with it. It's just some bizarre circumstance. And that's why we have the Ridiculous Driver of the Week. Exactly. First dog to be featured on the Ridiculous Driver of the Week and hopefully not the last. Well, when we get a dog who's driving a semi-trailer truck and also mixing music, then we'll have something. That would be sweet. Yeah. All right. Well, that's our podcast. Oh, we wrapped it up quick. Yep. Uh, if you need to reach us for any reason, you can find us online at vancouvercriminallaw.com or give us a call at 604-685-8889 and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.